Hey everyone, we are so excited to dive into episode nine today. This is part two at an inside look at our design process. There was so much good stuff in last week's episode. If you have not listened to that, go back or else today is not going to make much sense. And we're going to dive into how to take a project from the proposal all the way through to completion, including a few awesome actionable tips you can do after the project to keep business going and keep new clients coming your way. And today's episode is brought to you by the Interior Design Business Kickoff Kit. If you're thinking about starting a business or have just launched, let me help you kickstart things to make major progress in a short time. The Interior Design Business Kickoff Kit is six months, yeah man, six whole months of intensive one-on-one coaching with me, plus all the business documents you'll need to crush it behind the scenes and launch your design business like a boss. Book a complimentary call with me to learn more at lesliemeyerk.com slash coaching. And now this is episode nine, an inside look at our design process, part two. All right, this is episode nine, an inside look at our design process, part two. Dose. Part dose. <laughs> part dose. Morning, sunshine. Hi, how are you? I am doing awesome and I'm super excited to dive in today. I mean, I know we'll do our witty banter back and forth, but I've been super excited to chew off the rest of this 10-step process where we have been walking through how we run a project from start to finish. Yes, I know. I was so, um, it was hard for me to stop last time. I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to pick up where I left off, but I think we are. We've got some good notes here. Um, Why don't we start? Can you like recap for us where we left off uh, last week? Yeah, for sure. And we realize, you know, everyone does things differently. Our processes are pretty aligned, but even, you know, we've been giving you these 10 steps. We started with the first five. And even within that, there's been some subtle differences. But what we covered in last week's episode, episode eight, if you haven't already listened to that, it is part one of an inside look at our design process. Here is basically the first five steps. Step one is our paid, holla, consultation. Step two is contract and collecting the retainer. Step three is to do a site survey and trade day. Step four is the concept design. And step five is design development and presentation. Now that was meaty enough that that took up an entire episode and I'm excited to jump in. Did we have anything we needed to wrap up for episode five with design development and presentation? Anything new come up for you since we recorded that no, you wanted I, to add? Not exactly, but I think that that was a natural stopping point because if you think of a process, a project as a whole, um, the design presentation really makes up um, a big if you were to even break it into two steps, there's like the design side, which is a side that we have a lot of control over and we can organize ourselves and we can create processes like we outlined um, that are pretty tight and we can estimate our time pretty well. It's everything that happens from that moment on is sort of a different animal. And so I think it naturally makes sense to talk about it in these two episodes separately because it's at this point where you're kind of handing over control and decisions and feedback to not only your clients, but any contractors that you might be working with. And at this point, moving forward, there's a lot of things that are out of your control um, for for the most part. Um, 
and we can talk a little bit as we dive into the details, what, you know, what are the things that you can control and what are the things that you can control <laughs> right before we got onto this, um, recording, I, Leslie and I were just chatting about a project that came up that I'm in the middle of. And, and this has only happened to me one other time in my career, but, um, it's a situation where, um, the client just needs a, a, a good amount of time to go over all of the things that we've proposed to them. And it feels a little bit like crickets. We've been in communication, oh. but you know, we're ready to roll, <laughs> like write us a check and let's get going. Um, I realized though that we're, we're asking for a lot of money and these are things that you're going to be putting in your home for a long time. So I appreciate and respect that clients do need and want the time uh, to, to think about things. Um, I, don't mean to jump ahead of myself, but I do send an email with the PDF a week before the presentation that just reminds them what to expect and prepares them to be ready to come and make decisions, um, come and be ready to, you know, make a payment, um, which I have been very successful with in the past, but it's not something that works with every client. So yeah, uh, do we dive in. Absolutely. And this is a great starting point because I want to ask you, we talked about going up to step five, which is the divine design development. I guess it's also divine development and presentation. <laughs> so Kate, what happens for you when you get to that design presentation, you show them all your balls work and they want some reselections. Maybe they want some revisions to the drawings. What does that look like? Do you consider that part of the design process? Wow, this is not my day for talking. And do you keep you know, step five going or do reselections and revisions become something separate for you in the process? Um, I expect a degree of reselections and revisions. It's just natural. Yeah. Um, you can't win it all, all the time. I've had, I've literally had one presentation and I've had hundreds of clients over the year where the client was just like, we love everything and here's a check. <laughs> And I want that client. That's like a <laughs> unicorn. Yes, they and they were delightful to work with from beginning to end. Um, so I, I always anticipate some. Um, and so I do include that as part of my design development hours and, that I build in. Um, most people are pretty reasonable and they come, you know, with a handful of things that just fall flat for them and, and we expect that. Um, it's clients who continue to make changes and adjustments and ask for reselections and continue to flip flop on their decision-making afterward that kind of falls beyond that typical scope of just, Hey, let's reselect a few things that didn't work for you. Let's button up a few of these details on the drawings that we wanted to cross, you know, check with you on first. Um, and then it sort of becomes like redesigning the whole thing. And, you know, I, I, that doesn't happen a lot for me, but when it does, it, it certainly can throw off the timeline of a, of a project. But I, yeah, to answer your question, I do build in some time for that. That's smart. I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it would be a unicorn client that would say yes to everything and fork over a check. And so that's <laughs> smart to build that into step five. Okay. So say we do the presentation, you've made any reselections, any drawing revisions, and they're like, yes, this is amazing. Here's all my money. That means we're jumping into step six, which you call procurement. So tell me why procurement is your word of choice and not just purchasing or ordering. Because I know, I mean, we know it's bigger than that, but I'd love to hear your process for 
anything it takes to get items and stuff, I guess, or is it, this is just stuff to a client's home? Yes. So I call it procurement because it's really the action of obtaining or procuring something. Uh, in my case, it goes beyond just the act of purchasing. So um, it is creating an invoice for the client to pay up front. We, we take 100% payment up front and we set that expectation with our clients from the get-go. Do you get pushback on that? Because I do the same thing. I'm just curious to hear because I know not all designers take full payment at that time. Has that been successful for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it has been successful for me. I also remind them that all of our freight and delivery fees are estimated at this point and they can expect to give me more money later once I have that all figured <laughs> out. Um, so I do take hundred percent payment up front. So it's the process of not only taking the payment, but placing the orders, coordinating freight shipping, tracking orders, as well as doing any in the field sourcing and accessory shopping, um, as well as coordinating and preparing for the delivery and install. So I, I talk about procurement as all of those things bundled up and it's separate from project management, which project management would look more like, uh, we'll detail in a minute, but it's, it's kind of working in the home with the trades and sequencing and that sort of thing. So um, it has less to do with the stuff and has more to do with service-based actions. With people, with humans. With humans. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you something about your procurement process and um, estimating freight and shipping because I have had pushback from clients on this and I'm just starting to experiment with a free shipping model, meaning I am simply building margins into my products that include shipping. So it means, you know, it doesn't, they're not getting as much of it savings off of retail, but I'm not going back and invoicing for small things afterwards. Have you thought of doing something like that or is it working really well for you as part of your procurement process to invoice separately for freight later on? Well, first of all, I want to hear more about this because it's <laughs> my mind because I know there are so many companies out there that do offer free shipping and it gets drop shipped to your home. And, well, and let's also just be clear. Free shipping is a myth. They're just marking the yeah. shipping prices in the product of the item period. Exactly. But I think there is a, a psychological advantage to totally offering free shipping. I think it's so smart. Um, to be clear, I'm not, I'm billing them for shipping estimate up front. So I am itemizing that as well as tax. Um, and I don't, I don't get pushback on it. I think people, well, I guess you're collecting the bulk of the payment up front, I would imagine. Right. right. Yeah. But you know, if it changes and a lot of times it actually goes down, like my freight is, I'm sort of generous in my freight. Um, <laughs> I haven't always been it's sort of a reaction to underestimating freight. So now yes. I'm overestimating freight. And I will, I will mention, I just this week have interviewed a company, a, a purchasing agent in a sense who will do all of this for me. And so I know that's an option that a lot of designers do where they pass off the responsibility to a third party. Yep. And that's another way to do it. That um, is super popular in commercial design. Um, 
and I think just where we live in the Waco area, we, we don't have a receiver here. And so no. the, this I'm hoping could streamline things. So for, for folks listening that might be listening it from rural areas or places where you don't have a receiver and want to consider that, um, you still have to use a receiver. Um, but you might explore the idea of a purchasing agent as well. And yeah. usually take a fee. So, um, but can you, d- did I even answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Freight. You, uh, you ask about freight. Yes. I, I, I build in freight. Um, I want them to see, you know, that there are logistical costs to it, but yeah. I, I very much am intrigued by this idea of building that in for the psychological reason of just, so do you actually call it free shipping? Yeah, I do. So what happened that really pushed me towards this was I had a big project last year. I mean, it was living room, dining room, library, office, entry, and a little sitting room. So about six rooms. Dang. And the proposal, well, <laughs> the client ended up firing me, so it didn't end up working out anyway. You know that story, and it's not one that I'm going to dive into here. All that not, to today, not today, but I yeah, will tell you. Not today. I, another day. I... I do know the story in detail and it has actually happened to me before when I was in Denver and it just sometimes happens and there's no, I I don't think there's a big way. You did everything right. You did your job. Well, thank you. For the record, it's not that she screwed anything up. It was just (laughs) some janky people. Some janky people out there. So we had this proposal and it was over six figures. I mean, it was a, I think it was about $110,000 worth of product and contractor services and all that. And I am of the belief that I do share some of my trade discount with clients, not all. I certainly do not pass things along at cost, but I think it's a nice incentive to offer people, you know, to sort of disincentivize them to shop you is to say, you know, hey, look, I'm giving you 20% off retail and, you know, retail in air quotes. We all know that's kind of a fictional price. Anyway, on the six-figure proposal, there was line after line of, 20% off retail, 40% off retail, like these really substantial savings. And the savings totaled, I want to say it was, it was over $10,000 when I added them all up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was pretty generous with what I was passing through. And then there was also estimated shipping. And I want to say that came to about seven or 8,000 for everything. And that's where the client just sort of had this, wait, what? Like, you want me to pay more than this? And it was so confusing because I'm like, but, but I'm saving you like eleven, twelve thousand dollars. I mean, it, it 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 more than works out in your favor. But I mean, it was too late. I mean, he was also just a dodo. But <laughs> I I cannot use the real words on this podcast that I want to say. Anyway, it was one of those things where I was just like, whoa! Like there is such a psychological aspect to this where like it wasn't about the dollars. It wasn't about the money. It was like, wait, you already want me to pay this much, and then there's going to be more. Whereas thanks a lot, Amazon. Yes, yeah, thanks. Actually, you know what? People hate on all these, the Amazon model and other companies that are doing free shipping and fast turnarounds and crazy discounts. And you know what, guys? You got to get on board or you're sunk. Like, Ooh. period. You, you, we can't yeah. fight it. So you either have to work with it or you can just cry and go out of business. Anyway, this project really got me thinking about, can I offer free shipping? Can I give a more thorough proposal from day one that is all in shipping, freight, labor, like besides design fees, you will not pay a dime more 
than what is on this proposal. And I tried it out for a project just recently and it worked really well. I was still able to show that there was some savings off of retail, but it, it got smaller, you know, five to 10%. But then their quote included shipping and all those nitty picky little details that can add up and really feel nickel and dime at the end of a project. Why didn't we talk about this last week? Oh, this for my presentation. Man, this should almost be a full episode. Okay, I just want to tell you one thing. So the reason I'm confident in doing this free shipping model is because uh, I literally have a document that my assistant made called Nerdy Shipping Spreadsheet. And we've gone through every PO and we've put down the dollar amount of the purchase, the dollar amount of the freight after the fact, and figured out what percentage the freight was of the purchase. And so basically we figured out, and this is for our company in Texas, I'm not saying this is universal, but for us, typically items under $500, freight ran about 23%. If the item was 500 to 1,000, freight was around 20. And if it was a 1,000 plus, 1,000 plus dollar item, freight was around 13%. So that gives me a really solid ballpark. And by the way, I would not have thought 20 and 23%. That seems so high. So you, high. But you've got to think about like, you know, if you're buying a $200 lamp, 20% freight is not unrealistic. For, but so it's, and of course, as the, as the cost of good gets higher, the freight relatively is lower. All that to say, we had these numbers to work with and we have actual data to feel confident marking things up. So, you know, say I get a product, you know, I buy it wholesale at $500 and I put on my margin, say it's 50%. And then I'll put on another 20% and then I know I'm good. Not only is there my margin for profit, but there's enough margin to cover the freight probably generously and we're done. And the clients are like, great, free shipping. I'm happy. Right. So exactly. it, it's, it's a little risky when you don't have the data or numbers to back it up. But if you've mm -hmm. done enough purchasing, you can probably, if you're willing to take the time to make a nerdy shipping spreadsheet, you can probably figure out those averages if you wanted to try this model. I've only done it for one project, but I do, I do like where it's going. And it also simplifies time later because I'm not having to go through every invoice for shipping and expense it. And that, you know, sometimes those vendors take months to get the freight invoices. I've had freight invoices come in after a project has wrapped. And I'm like, I can't, I can't go back to them for $65. Like, I guess I'm just going to eat that money. I've never had that happen. Oh. Okay. I am so intrigued. I am loving this. And I guess the thing that feels surprising to me at first, but when I think about it, I'm like, no, that makes sense is figuring out the percentage based on the value of the item. Um, I mean, if you think about it, to me, that wouldn't have been intuitive at first. I mean, if you think of like a bolt of fabric, if you're buying a high-end bolt of upholstery fabric that's several thousand dollars worth of material, it's going to cost the same to ship it if yeah. it's a you know, $50 yard. And that's why these are ballparks. And but, 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 see, but that's, that's where I get like stuck in my own head and like, well, that'll never work. But like, it makes sense because a lot of my vendors, as I'm thinking about it, as you were talking, I'm like, no, they all kind of do it based on price. Cause I'm thinking of like weight and size. And so I 100% want to do this. I completely agree that the psychological impact of paying several thousand dollars worth of shipping 
can be a challenge for a consumer who isn't part of this crazy business. So high fives. Oh my gosh. I cannot thank you enough for sharing that. (laughs) I want to hear from anybody who's listening to this. Do you, if you test this out for yourself and do you come out with similar numbers or do your numbers look very different? You know, are you East coast, West coast? Cause yeah. those are, those will really change. Well, or it's going to depend where yeah. you live and what vendors you buy from and where they're totally. headquartered. Uh, yeah. So, but I, I, I like that very much. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. My mine, pleasure. Mine let's, let's definitely table this just uh, the free shipping bit. And let's save that for another episode. Cause I think we could go on about this and figure out best practices and stuff, but where, where we got, stuck was this, this procurement step. So I know we were talking about this as part of procurement, but I think we touched on most of the points. Most, most of your procurement process, basically you get paid, you place orders you make it happen and you get it where it needs to be. Boom. That's step six for you. Yeah. We, ch- we spend a lot of time tracking our orders and just oh. checking on the status of them, which a purchasing agent would do that for us if, if we want that route. And that sounds lovely. Yeah. So step seven is project management. And you said you're, the difference that you sort of define is project management is more about working with people and that part of it versus getting the stuff. So tell me about your project management step and what that looks like. Sure. Well, step six and seven in no way happen concurrently. Um, it's just different aspects of what we're doing. So once orders have been placed and while those are in the process of moving along, we're also going to be working with our trades. So the first thing we do is after we meet with the client and, and the client has approved any sort of trade work. So um, wallpaper installation, lighting, fixture changes, um, flooring, painting, I could go on or whether it's working with a general contractor who's going to be the one organizing all of the subcontractors. Um, Either way, I'm going to be going back to these folks and saying, congratulations, you have won the award for this project. Not the award, but like (laughs) the contract. Gold star, you get a job. I mean, we've got our trades that we work with down pretty well, but if if there were multiple people that we got quotes from, we would go back and award that contract to that particular person um, and find out what is their timeframe to start and find out their and actually we've already done a lot of this like work up front, but we find out, um, you know, their payment sequence, their, their payment schedules and what to expect. And, um, we work on scheduling them. So really it has a lot to do with working with the trades. And so once we, if there are any revisions to make to the original request for proposal that we sent out prior to the design presentation, we will make modifications or changes to those. So, um, we'll resend those back if they need to edit anything. So say, for example, we originally requested a proposal for them to um, do all new lighting throughout the house, but now we've decided one of those lights actually needs to move four feet because it's not really in the right place. We'll go back, we'll revise the request for proposal, ask them to resubmit, and then we will make those changes with our client and move on. So we do those um, revisions. we find out what is their payment schedule. Usually they ask for 50% upfront. Um, I've occasionally had people ask me for 100% upfront, but I absolutely will not do it. So you um, take 100% from your clients, but you don't pay your trades 100% upfront. No, I hold that money. Yeah, Actually, I do the same thing. Yeah, and I do work a little bit different in Texas than I did in Colorado. So in Texas, I am 
Um, most of my big projects have been big enough that it did warrant a contractor, um, kitchens and baths and just like whole house renovation. So in that case, I really am putting the client and the contractor in touch together and asking them to coordinate, um, payment and scheduling. Um, I don't, there's more liability and risk in Texas for me to do that. Um, so I personally, it's not illegal for me to do it. I could, I just choose not to. And I, and I make the client pay the general contractor on a smaller project. If I had, you know, a little bit of wallpaper, a little bit of paint, a little bit of electrical work, um, I would be fine taking that payment from the client and distributing those funds to the, to the, the trades. Um, you know, especially if it didn't require general contractor, um, but as a typical practice, I prefer to have my general contractor and the client have their own contract that I kind of stay out of. So if the client has that direct relationship with the GC, what does that look like if a client wants to make changes? Yes. Do you feel like you lose control there? Do you have a good structure in place to handle that? I'm vigorously nodding yes. This, this, <laughs> this has happened. And I've just had to have a conversation with my contractor. And I say, look, I understand that your client your contract is technically with your client. Um, but I'm also the one that brought you this job and I'm the one that designed it. So even if the client, you know, if the client wants to make changes and you don't see any issues with it, I understand how you could not see any issues, but sometimes I see things that you might not be aware of when you make those changes and how they can snowball or have a domino effect and affect other aspects of design. So I have set the expectation, not only in my contract with my client, but also with my contractor that really under no circumstance should you be making changes without at least running them by me. I can object. Ultimately it will be up to them. You know, it's the client's money and it's the contractor and their relationship, but I at least want them to run it by me so that I can perhaps shed some light on why it may or may not be a good idea. And usually it's fine, but we did go, I did go through that recently where I had a couple of changes that were made and I was like, well, who decided that was okay? Like that doesn't make sense. And, and at that point it was out of my control. So it was a definite learning experience. And you're right. When I don't have that contract myself, then that's a risk, but I've been working with the same contractor now and we have a good working relationship. He knows I'm going to continue to bring him work, um, quality work, um, as long as he and I can maintain a good relationship. And so um, he, heard, he heard that. And hopefully it won't be an issue moving forward, but something to consider. Good question. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And I, I don't know how I feel about, I haven't actually done a project where I pay a tradesperson per se. Uh, I guess a small one, just building some furniture. But <laughs> so... Yeah, that's been new for me. In Denver, I used to pay, um, distribute money to all of my trades and I was literally acting like general contractor. And I imagine some of you that are listening to this have done this. So, um, the other part of project management, if you're doing this is, and you're not working with a general contractor, you really are responsible for the sequencing of a project. So, um, take for example, this idea of I'm using an experience that I've had. I'm doing built-ins on a big wall and in the built-ins are, are not only painted, but there's wallpaper on the back of them as a little highlighter feature. And we also are installing new lighting sconces on the back. Um, and we've got a TV going in there and all new power and electrical and data going in there as well. Um, 
So who comes first? Your painter, your wallpaper, your electrician, your mill worker. You're, you're really in that one little area of the home dealing with, what did I just count? Like five different trades. Mm-hmm. And so you have to think strategically about which one comes first. And so the important thing to do is just talk to your trades and find out their preference. And eventually you can get to a place where you kind of know what makes sense. Um, so in our case, you know, the mill worker would do all of his offsite um, prefabrication and then bring it in and build it and put it together. Um, our painter, but prior to the electrician and the, sorry, prior to the mill worker installing it, we would have a group meeting with the electrician, identifying exactly where those sconces were going to go and preparing those um, J boxes for us. And so the contractor and the electrician would work closely together with me on that. And so then the mill work comes in and they're able to create those holes for the new lights. And then the painter comes in and he paints everything, allows it time to dry. Then the wallpaper person comes in, they're done. And then the electrician comes in and finishes out the electrical work. So there's the rough end for the electrical and then the final. And so our job is to ensure that folks are showing up on time, Folks are doing the work that they're supposed to do. If they have questions, they know to contact us. We're coming in and checking their work. We're scheduling them. We're paying them. We are general contractors. Yeah. it's That's exhausting though. And it was like, it's just not something I wanted to do. So I'm just not doing it anymore. I'm I'm hiring a general contractor for all of that. It was lucrative, but yeah. Yeah. It does come with liability though, but that is why it's lucrative. You have to have a margin on those things because you're on the hook. If you're the one subbing out people, if you're the one paying the bills, you are the GC, at least in the state of Texas. That's how it operates here. Yeah. So. Do you, do you coordinate all of your trades if you don't have a subcontractor? Yeah. It depends on the size of the project. Like we're doing a bedroom right now and it's simple, but there's a few steps. We, you know, room was painted. We've got wallpaper, we've got electrical, and that's not something I brought in my big guns contractor for. I mean, I have been coordinating those and it's a pain. (laughs) I don't want to. It's so much time Mm -hmm. for a big project, like like a kitchen remodel. I do work with a contractor and he's got his own team. So he's my one point person. And I love that. Yeah. I I have a little checklist that we keep and it's like, okay, if you answer yes to at least three of these questions, a general contractor is 100% necessary. Nice. I That's a good strategy. I can tell you what those questions are right now. I could probably <laughs> if I pulled it up, but I then but you I know them. Talk. Yeah. All right. So let's talk now. We've done step six, procurement. Step seven, project management. That takes us to step eight, install day. The good part. I mean, the part that we've all been waiting for the whole time. I, know. I could just talk about this day all day. All right. What does your install day look like? Because obviously there's, you know, there's some work that has to happen before, like you were saying. Like you can't have painting and wallpaper and electrical all on install day. So no. what does it look like to you to do? Sometimes there is a lot well, <laughs> happening while furniture is coming in and you're like, yeah, it's supposed to be done just a week ago. Um, yeah, this is that HGTV moment. This is the part where you see, um, all the final details coming together. Um, and they make it look so easy and it was, and it's effortless. And it's like this little furniture fairy came and brings in all of this gorgeous stuff that just appears. Um, and yeah, that's not at all how this freaking happens y'all. And if you've done it, you know, um, so this is what my install days look like. Um, first of all, there's a lot of preparation the day or days before, um, just to get ready for that. Um, I make sure that we've got all of our accessories in order. 
Um, so they are bundled up, wrapped up, bubble wrapped, labeled, tagged, all of that good stuff. We've already yeah. done our, sh our shopping and curating as part of the procurement process. Um, just making sure that that's all organized. Um, but even before install day, there's some preparation. Um, you've got to send your list to your receiver and make sure that they have everything um, has arrived that you expect should be there and that they know exactly which of your items will be coming. Imagine you've got multiple projects and your receiver has furniture from multiple clients of yours. You need to make sure they're bringing the right stuff. So you want to make sure that that's nice and buttoned up. Have your accessories ready and inventoried. Um, I have a policy that clients should not be home. This is something that has been a sticky point sticking point for me in the past and I've tried to make it um, as effortless as possible for clients now. Um, this is really important on projects where you're doing a lot of furniture. It's like a furniture based project. Um, if you're doing a kitchen renovation, this is not exactly, you know, our bathroom renovation. It's not something that this this rule doesn't hold true to those scenarios for obvious reasons. Um, but let's say we're doing all new furnishings and this should hold true. You need to get the client out of the house. If they both work um, and they're out of the house during the day, that shouldn't be hard. But what I would recommend is have dinner reservations ready for them to and to buy yourself time if needed. Um, yes, you buy dinner. And yeah, girl. This is... Um, this is all about being boutique. Um, if it's a multi-day install, you will also be paying for a nice hotel room and breakfast as well. If you add this up, um, you know, a hundred dollar dinner gift certificate, $150 hotel room, $30, $40 breakfast. I mean, you're not out, but a couple of hundred dollars. And if it's a project that's taking multiple days, you're markup and margins should be able to cover that effortlessly. Yeah. Okay. And if not, you need to rethink those. Yeah. It's another episode. Yeah. So, um, and this is such a luxury for your clients and they feel so pampered and they don't like, it feels like a little mini staycation and, um, it's a small expense to you and you have the breathing room to have the space that you need when S H I T. Is it the same if I say it and spell it? Like, is that allowed? I don't know. Um, <laughs> When it when the stuff hits the fan, something comes in wrong, something's broken, something just isn't working out. Like your client's not there listening and overhearing and getting confused and worried for you know they like they just don't get it. They don't need to be part of that. They don't need to have an opinion. They need to be out of there. Yeah. So clients should not be home if it's a one day install. Buy them dinner when they and be ready when they get home. If it's a multi day install, treat them to a nice hotel room dinner and breakfast. Love it. So classy. <laughs> um, I have a pet policy too. Um, we, are, we are not responsible for pets. So imagine your client's several thousand dollar cherished family pet runs out the door because your furniture guys are bringing in furnishings and bolts off. How terrible would you feel about that? Like, I know personally, I would just about die. Um, so we make it very clear that there needs to be arrangements made for your pets. Um, the doors are going to need to be open. There's going to be furniture coming in and out. 
and you need to just talk to your clients about what makes the most sense for them and, and their lifestyle and their pet. Perhaps they need to be boarded. Perhaps there's a room in the house where they will be fine being kenneled for the day. Um, and you can check in them and take them out and play with them for a minute if that's something you're inclined to do. Um, but really setting the expectation that you can't be responsible for them. I actually had a client once who, in her mind, she had like the sweetest little dog, but this tiny little ankle biter or puntable as my husband calls them, uh, which is so funny because he's such a gentle giant. Um, he was downright scary. Like I was always afraid as I walked past him, he was going to bite my ankles. I'm just like, ah, God. And you know, I just, it was something I didn't think about with the guys were going to be there working. And she was like, can you just ask the guys not to let them out the back door? Cause there's some other work going on. And I don't, I was like, no, honey, no, we got to do something about that dog. You, you got to put a gate up. We can't be responsible. And so hence that rule was born. Yeah. I think that's a great one to deal with in advance and make sure that expectations are met and everyone's on the same level. Yeah. Awesome. Also, guys, these are not questions you need to be figuring out from day one when you're interviewing a client. Like, that's going to overwhelm them. Just feed them these decisions when the time's right, but yep. shouldn't be on the day of install. You need to be thinking about this prior. Um, I have an install day box, and it is <laughs> just a result of showing up and needing all the same stuff every time. So, my install day kit or box consists of a number of things that just makes life easier. Um, I have a list here of some of the things that are in the box. Um, I keep it in a large clear plastic bin and I have a checklist that is taped to the inside of the lid. If we are out of something, we have a sticky note on there that says replenish X items and we can fill it out the day of. Um, so including our client binder, which we should have on us, um, we have wall hanging tools. Um, Usually we have an art hanger, but sometimes for small pieces, having those items is handy. We have a small toolkit. We keep blue painters tape. Uh, if we identify deficiencies or things that we need to have fixed, uh, we go through and we just mark up like a punch list with blue tape. Uh, we keep glass cleaner, wood polish, a bleach, bleach pen, Tylenol, band-aids, uh, water bottles for everybody. I bring a big cooler, actually separate from the install day kit but it's, it has water bottles, Gatorade, snacks, those sort of things to keep people moving. I also buy lunch for everybody, including the trades. Um, I just order a big pizza and make everybody just take 10, sit down, 10, 20, I don't care, sit down and eat. <laughs> I love that. But just, you got to take care of your people. Um, also, I get cranky when I don't eat, so it's partially selfish. Yeah, um, I'm the same way. I'm always I, thinking about food. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I'll just go to the grocery store and pick up, you know, or let's be honest, I'll send somebody to the grocery store and have them pick up snacks that um, we can also have before and after lunch um, and breakfast tacos. You, just, you have to have breakfast tacos. Um, Furniture moving pads. If you need to move something, making sure you don't scuff the floors. Um, we bring a steamer and iron and of course, fresh flowers. So of course. Oh, shoe covers, trash bags, box cutters, um, blade scrapers. So if you need to take labels or price tags off of things and gooby gone, um, scissors, shoe covers. You don't want people coming into your clean floors and getting them dirty. So a broom yeah. and a Swiffer. Yeah. And that install box is a great thing to just keep as a kit. Like don't go digging for this every project, make the box, find a home for it. 
and just grab it when you need it. Cause I've done that before where, you know, you don't want to waste real estate on a storage tote. And then you're like, where's my garbage bags? Where's my bed? And it takes an hour to pull this all together. Yeah, just exactly. keep it, keep it ready. Have it, have it at the ready. And it's, it's going to come in handy more than you know to have all these great tools at your disposal for on-site stuff you have to do for clients. Yeah, a hundred percent. And we'll put the whole checklist of what are, what's in our install day boxes in the show notes for you guys that you can download. Yeah, that's, that's great. So furniture guys arrive, uh, the, the receiving company comes, brings in all the furniture. A um, couple of things I do on install day is if there are multiple rooms involved in the project, I tape up my um, design board or you might call them a mood board, but it's the image that shows what all furniture should be going in that room. And I'll tape it up on the door or the entryway to each room. I so love that with the floor plan too. So they can kind of see the layout. Um, I've tried that, but they don't know how to read them. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I, I, we have somebody there kind of telling them exactly where to, where it goes, but, um, that does help expedite things. If it's a large delivery, um, I would recommend that. I also ask them when they're packing the truck to pack the rugs last because they need to be the first things to go down. But yes. Times where we've had like furniture is all in. And then the last thing they pull out are the rugs and we're like, we got to pick up and move all the stuff now. <laughs> and so if you just remind them of that little thing, it can make your install days go more smoothly. So, so smart. Um, then once all the furniture is in place, there's the accessorizing. Um, I've had a couple of installs where we just bring everything into the house and start unpacking it and taking it out of packages. If there are any and bubble wrap and price tags, and it just gets to be this like big mess and you can't really see where anything goes and it's all on the floor and it's, it made me come undone. So I was like, no more of this. So we have little portable tables and a pop-up tent. So the pop-up tent goes usually in the driveway. Um, or in the garage, if it's raining, we ask to have access to the garage. Um, and we um, just set up the tables and get everything out there. And we have trash and recycling. And a, we usually have everything inventoried. And so um, we just use that as kind of our command station to get everything in. And we take out what we don't use. And so I recommend that uh, on a really large install. That's genius. I've always just found another room in the house to work from, but then you are like packed the gills. Too. No, it doesn't. It sucks. I like your, I'm going to go buy me a tent. That's a really, really good idea to have this sort of home base. That's not in the house. I think, I think a pop-up tent's like 50 bucks and you can usually get one with sides and you'll end up using it for like picnics or whatever. So it's a good thing That's to awesome. have. And besides that, you look totally like professional. It's like true. I, like I do this all the time. I have a tent. I am a professional. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Leslie's going to get one and it's going to have her logo on it. I literally was just thinking about that. <laughs> it's like, how can I get one that's branded? Can I embroider it? Can I get a sticker? I don't even know. So you accessorize. And by that time of day, let's assume this is a one day install. You're done. You've got the furniture in. You've got the decor. It looks uh, maze balls. You've hauled off the trash. 
No, or, yeah, I was going to say, like, wait a second. We're not done. Oh, right. I want to get to the reveal. Okay, fine. Okay. Tell me what's next. All right. You guys do not ever, ever, ever leave trash recycling on your client's property. Period. Make a plan for that stuff to be gone. I, it's been a rookie mistake I've made very early on, but it leaves a bad taste in your client's mouth. It sets a poor impression. So options are, hey, you haul it off yourself and find a place to get rid of it. I'm not going to tell you what that looks like, but just saying, don't leave it at your client's house. You can pay for somebody to come pick it up. I've had my contractor take it before. A lot of times your receiving company will just put it on their delivery truck and take it back because they have yep. So whatever it is, I don't care what that looks like. Don't leave trash and recycling in uh, the responsibility of your, of your clients. So um, yeah, so then we've also gone through and we've identified deficiencies. So if there's anything that was broken or missing or didn't work, you need a plan to resolve it. So we've got a spreadsheet for that and someone is responsible for taking care of it. Um, and we identify what was the issue, what needs to happen to resolve it and who's responsible for it. So be prepared because acting as if that's not going to happen is hmm. just not. It's a rookie mistake. It's going to happen. Not so, everything yeah. goes according to plan. Yeah. Even the most experienced designers have this. So, And you make such a good point making a spreadsheet. I can't tell you the number of times I have thought I will remember something. So it's, oh, I'll remember to fix X or replace Y or we need a vase for this table. And you don't. There's just too much going on on a day like that. Be diligently taking notes. Write it all is, down. You're right. And the truth is those deficiencies are usually like the tiniest little details. For example, my few install install a few months ago at this point, the finial that goes on the top of the lamp, one of them was wonky. Like it wouldn't screw in so that the finial would stick up straight. It was like crooked. And I was like, well, that's not going to work. Like, so like, it's just this tiny little thing. And, you know, I handed it off to somebody, they called the company and they sent a new one. We popped on in there, replaced it. I don't even know if the client even knew that happened, but they certainly would. It, I think we told them so they wouldn't be like, Hey, what's at this wonky finial? But, um, that, those are the kind of deficiencies that we're talking about. They're usually the smallest things that are really easy to forget about. But when you add them up and a client's walking through, it can seem like if you don't communicate these things to the client, that it's a laundry list of things. And sometimes it is. I also want to just point out that I think it's important to don't lead with the deficiencies when you're doing your reveal, <laughs> like save that for afterward. But, um, just a quick reminder, say, Hey, there's always going to be a few things that we have to come back and kind of button up. Um, we'll go over those with you later. Um, but don't ignore it and don't not talk about it with your client. Don't make yeah. a huge deal out of it, but you have to acknowledge it somewhat. Yeah. And I think you make a great point about it's important to acknowledge and just to acknowledge that it is normal. Like you didn't goof. Things happen. Things get delivered crooked or bent or things just don't work that you would hope would. But you as a badass boss are going to resolve it beautifully for your client. That's why they've hired you. We actually have a word or phrase in our contract. I don't know if it's in our welcome kit or our contract, but it's called womp womps. Womp womp. <laughs> and so it sort of becomes this like comedic moment where we're like, we had a womp womp. <laughs> and so this is it. It's normal. It's so normal. We've like systemized it. <laughs> it's part of the, it's part of the process. We had a womp womp. And when you say it like that, it, you just kind of lighten the, 
mood about, uh, mood about it, then, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but be a cautionary, you know, advice is just be mindful to not do that in an, in the wrong case where it's a big mistake and it's a mistake you've made. Um, that's not the time that you're wanting to make jokes. Amen. Just, just want <laughs> to own up stuff. But if it's little stuff like the finial came and it's wonky, that's a womp womp. Womp womp. Okay. <laughs> so right, moving on. Step eight, install day. Are we at the reveal yet? Because I really want to get to that part. Is this the I reveal? I know. Yes. This okay. Is, all yes. right. So um, I love reveals. We all live for that. I mean, any kind of reveal. Who doesn't love watching um, uh, <laughs> God, I can't even talk right now. Fab Five, the queer eye, queer eye. God, I, you and I are just not on our coffee game this morning, I guess. But yeah, yeah I like, have to ask a very important question before you go on. Yeah. If you could pick one of them to be your boyfriend, and yes, I know they're gay. Who would it be? Jonathan Van Asp without doubt. Oh. Actually, oh no, all of them. I, I just. I love every single one of them for different reasons. And I've listened to them all, all their stories. Bobby Burke, he's got a Denver reference. And Tan, he like retired at 35 and was like. Not the question, honey. Who would be your queer eye boyfriend? Oh, the chef. <laughs> mm. Anthony, yeah, he's my oh, choice Anthony. too. <laughs> <laughs> he's also Canadian. So I feel like I'm strong oh, connection he with really? him. He's yeah. so cute. And he always gets a little teary eyed in the show and those little lips. Yeah. But like straight up, Karamo is definitely the hottest. Oh, for <laughs> he's way sure. out of my league. Sure, for sure. <laughs> I feel like he's not even touchable. Yeah, he's he's amazing. I would take a road trip with Jonathan Venice. Like All right. Well, you can have Jonathan. I'll take Anthony. And moving on. So reveal day. <laughs> I, I, I want all of them. Okay. So reveal day is as I was saying, like anybody loves a reveal. This is the fun part, right? I think it's important. There are a few things that you just want to get right. Um, I am not going to name names, but there are two HGTV show hosts. And one of them does this really, really, really well. And one of them, in my opinion, does not. I will leave it up to you to figure out who these people may or may not be. Are they on the same show? Nope. And also oh. one of them, I don't think even ha- doesn't even have a show anymore, but was the queen for a while. Okay, moving on. So before they come... You want to set the mood. You want to get the lights just right. If they're usually going to be coming home in the evening, so don't have like all the lights blaring on, you know, on full speed. Dim the lights, light some candles, incorporate some music. I've done turntables and record players before. Get those going. Um, Turn off TVs, turn off your phones. Um, Just make it super special. But this is the thing that I think sets these two show hosts apart and it's something that I've paid attention to and do for myself, but you always want to let the client enter first. Oh, that's good. I feel like walking in before them is kind of like, Hey, come look what I did. It's more like, no, this is a gift for you. Go have it. This is for you. Thank you. And you don't need to hang outside for like 10 minutes. Just like let them have a moment, let them be the ones to see it and let them experience it. And, oh, I'm getting goosebumps because this is usually where you get like a little glisten in the eye and they turn around and they say, this was worth every penny. Thank you. And it was worth the six months, year, two years that it took to get here. (laughs) Um, Just letting them walk in 
first makes them the more important person in this experience. And by God, they are this. It's like, I tell my clients all the time, this is not the Kate show. Mm, I like that. This is really about your clients. So that it's subtle, but I think it's important. Um, and then just go through the home and share with them the thing, you know, let them talk first, let them take a minute to take it in. Um, they're going to have questions, you know, if they see something that, you know, is a deficiency or something that, you know, just say, Hey, I'm going to, yes, we are aware of that. It's on our list already. Um, you don't need to worry about it. It's already taken. It's already, the balls are already in the wheels are already in motion to take care of that. Um, and say, we've got a few other things too. And we'll just share those with you in a moment. Take them through the house, show them all the rooms, let them ask questions and it should be fun. Um, if you know that your clients are people who enjoy a glass of wine or champagne, by all means, have something like that ready um, and some fresh flowers. And um, they will not soon forget this moment. And yeah. they will be grateful for you. I love it. I mean, this is, this is why we do full service design. And I know there's lots of, you know, there's good opportunities in e-design and design consulting. But I feel like with both of those options, you never get to take clients through to this moment, to that real like, oh, this is amazing. Like it was worth every penny, like you said. I feel like when they have to do a lot of the work, you just, even if they like what you've done, I just feel like they're never quite as deeply satisfied as when you have taken them through the whole process. And I do realize that full service design is a luxury service and is an investment. It is just sometimes straight up out of people's budgets to do it this way. But I do see tremendous value in walking through the whole 10 step process with clients when the project allows for it. Yeah. You know, one of the things we had to do for that same client who I mentioned earlier said yes to everything and wrote us a check on the spot, we could predict that we were going to be running over on our anticipated hours. And Ooh. so I, I hopped on the phone call with them and I knew it was going to be a multi-day install. And I said to them, you know, this is, this is where we are. This is what I project we're going to need, you know, to, to see this through to completion. Um, are you guys fine with me letting my team come and prepare for the install mostly on their own and having me on call if they need to, because obviously my rate is more of a premium than my assistants. And they were so fine with that because they knew them and they had been in their home and they didn't have this expectation that I needed to be there for everything. So that was one way that we saved my clients money is I let my team go. It was two or three girls. I can't remember. And they unpacked everything. They got everything organized and set up and somewhat assembled. And on the second day I came in and we just judged things and we were good to go and everybody was happy. So that's a way that you can service your clients without. Yeah. You know, I like that. Awesome. I okay, also so just for a side note, started reading clockwork by Mike McCallowitz who also wrote profit first. Mm -hmm. And I've literally just scratched the surface of this book, but he talks about what are the queen, queen bee roles, QBR. Like what are the things that you can't not do in your business? And that's, those are the only things you should be doing and you should be having other people helping you develop a really good team to do everything else. And so it's like, no, I don't need to go over there and unpack a bunch of crap from a box. Like y'all do that. I'll show up when it's ready. 
Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and like he calls a queen bee for a reason. And I, I mean, I certainly don't think of myself as a queen bee. I like to get in there. I like to get my hands dirty. I like to be part of the process. And certainly that's like the most fun day, but sometimes you can blow a client's budget if you try to do everything <laughs> too. Yes. And it, and perception wise, you know, if I hired a designer and it was the principal designer windexing my windows and unpacking boxes, that wouldn't feel like a very responsible use of my investment in the project. I mean, you can hire a cleaning crew for $35 an hour to do that job instead of paying you $100, $200 plus an hour to do the same thing. Yes. And that's a good point that I left out of here is a lot of times I will hire a cleaning crew to come in and help um, get everything set up and ready in the install too, and building that into your billing. So yeah, that's so reveal day. After the reveal. So that step eight is install and reveal. But you know what? There's still two steps left. What? So what happens after the reveal in step nine, which is kind of project wrap? Um, sure. So I will also say that on the reveal day, I leave a th handwritten thank you note. That's one thing I forgot to mention. Just I love it. When they're gone, just a quick little note to reiterate that you're grateful for them and their service and the opportunity to serve them. Um, unless they were total jerks, then don't. But that's, that's not true. I do it no matter who they are. <laughs> Kill them with kindness. Um, so then there's the project wrap and that is where, um, my team and I work out the deficiencies, whatever was on that list. We figure out who's going to do it and just get, get it done as quickly as possible. Awesome. Uh, there's also final invoicing and the client binder, which, um, I'll be honest. I've, I've do for larger projects, smaller projects, they, this, little step, but I think is so important, but I sometimes tend to forget it on smaller projects is the client binder. But, um, in addition to the final invoicing, um, the binder includes things like the specifications for the furniture that they bought. This can be handy if they have, I had a client who actually had a flood in their basement that we had finished out and they needed a bunch of specs for me like years later to help with their insurance claim. Um, this ensures they're not going to come knocking on your door when you're on a deadline for a project two years later. So unless it got flooded in the flood to the, the client binder <laughs> and then your SOL. Um, but yeah, it has the specs as care and maintenance. Um, I think you and I talked about this in yours has like fabric and paint swatches too, which is good. Yeah. That way if they ever want to change or update things, it's really easy for them to take stuff you know they actually have little takeaway samples of yeah everything they might need to match colors or you, right. know, you don't want you don't want them going rogue and doing their own thing you want them to come back but right. I think it just it's just convenient it's yeah. so nice to have yeah well and and the warranties and binders are important too I I just I think that um this could help prevent clients from coming back and asking you pesky little detailed questions that yeah. become a nuisance down the line. And so you How can do I change the speed on my ceiling fan? <laughs> Open your client binder. It's in the manual. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I, I will probably make a point of making that more of a priority moving forward. I agree. I had the same thought listening to this. I had a lot of those questions come up for me lately and I'm like, I don't know. And you know, that binder is really part of that whole boutique service, that extra level. Yes. I mean, it just shows you are a legit professional. You've, you have all these technical details. You've made it accessible for them. 
And it's just, it's one of those rock star moves I think you're never going to go wrong with. And once you have a format built for the binder, it does not take long to put them together, maybe an hour. And that's definitely something you can pass off to an assistant, to a junior, someone who is not you. Once you've got your template and a guideline created. Yes. Or, or are you saying no? You're hesitating. No, I'm, I'm oh, okay. just thinking to myself, I should probably do this for my next <laughs> next client <laughs> like where's a piece of paper I didn't write this down so um, yeah I it might also be important so that you don't have to print all of this stuff out some of it you're going to have to print but ask your general contractor to you can even create during um, installation or construction at your project create a station where anytime an electrician or somebody unpacks something they have a designated place that goes where those um Warranties, manuals, yeah, or all of that goes, so you can co collect it and give it to your client at some point. Love it. So then that's step nine, wrapping up the project, and then step ten is really post project. You thought you were done at nine? No, ma'am. There's always stuff to do, and I think this is the stuff that really brings it all home and finishes it up. So for me, post project is a request for a review and feedback. Yeah, we do that by email. We ask for. Um, basically our feedback form is pretty short. We ask them to rate us on a scale of one to 10 and we say if it was anything other than a 10, what could we do to improve? And then we have a spot for, you know, tell us what you're, tell us what you loved about the process. So to encourage some positive feedback, but also I really want to know the constructive feedback. I want to know where we might have dropped the ball, where we fell short of their expectations and be able to use that moving forward. Do you have a, a feedback or review process, Kate? I do. They, I have a Google Doc, or is it a SurveyMonkey? Google Form, one of those one, things. Yeah. Um, where I, I give them a place to basically download, in their own words, whatever feedback they might want to give. Um, and that's been really helpful, especially in my e-design projects that helped Ooh. me create, which we'll, we're going to get to in another episode. But... Um, but even in my full service, you know, um, understanding what were the things that we could do better. And then, I mean, you have a sense, uh, based on your relationship with your client, would they be willing to give you a really great review? And that's a separate, it's usually in the same email, but it's a separate request where it's a link and it says, you know, as a, as a small business owner, um, having reviews and feedback online is, is the way that I can help keep my business moving forward. And, and would you be willing to do that for me? Yeah. Uh, so it's separate asking them for a review and for feedback is not one of the same. Oh, interesting. I do it all at the same time, just kind of capturing their energy all at once. Cause I'm like, Hey, you can just copy and paste. <laughs> like if you wrote something one place, don't reinvent the wheel kind of thing. Well, and I don't mean to confuse that. They can do that, but it's like, I want them to put a Google review and that's different from filling out a. Yes, that's true. Uh, than, than filling a feedback uh, form that's internal. You know, and for versus, you, it might be more important to have your review on Facebook or house or whatever. For me, it's Google. Yeah, me too. So, Although my Google page is currently suspended and I'm still fighting with Google on that. So all 13 why? of my five-star reviews are no longer being seen. Oh no. Oh, it's super fun. It's a, a technical. Why in the something hell? happened. I ended up with two pages and I didn't mean to. 
And then I'd have to change my address and they flagged me for suspicious, uh, whatever it's, and I've been talking with them, but God, that's yeah. the kind of stuff that me like, as a business owner, I'm like, yeah. I don't want to have to deal with this, but if you're Mike no. McCallowitz with clockwork, he's going to be like, girl, you should not be doing that. That's not a queen bee role. I know, but <laughs> I'm about to move across the country and try to start a business in a new city. I want my Google to look good when people find me. And right now, like nothing comes up and it's real sad. Anywho, uh, yes, Google reviews are important. Sorry. You're not asking for those, do it. And one new thing that I'm starting to do is ask clients for video testimonials. Not every client, you know, you got to make sure that the person is going to project the image of your ideal client and be good on camera. Mm -hmm. But that's something I'm dabbling with. So no one's finished one yet, but I have three people, one coaching client and then two residential design clients who are in the process of filming short testimonial videos for me. So I'm curious to see how those are going to turn out and pop those up on the site. I think that just helps. Do we have time for a question on that? I guess, yeah, we got to wrap up soon. But what's your question, Kate? Okay, so how do you do that? Do you go over and you hold the video and, and or do you ask them to do it for themselves on their own time? And then what do you plan to do with them and where do you plan to put them? Right now, I am trying with, hey, just record it on your phone. Make sure it's horizontal. Send it to me. Like I can... I can tweak it in iMovie. I can lighten it, make it look a little better. I'm trying to take the intimidation factor out of it for them and just see if they'd feel comfortable doing a quick phone camera review. Again, this is new for me. So no one's actually done one yet. I'm just waiting. But three people have said yes. And so my plan is to have... I guess that would be a little easier than being like, hey, I'm going to hold the camera up and I want you to talk about how awesome I am. Tell me how great I am to this camera and to me because I'm here. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm trying it out this way. Yeah. And then my plan is to have that would be one, awesome. you know, one testimonial from a residential design client on my work with us page, just kind of incorporated probably on my YouTube channel. Um, maybe do clips on social media. There's so many ways you can leverage video content and to have someone else saying awesome things about you. It's a really, really good thing. So I'm really excited to see what these will look like. I mean, I don't want them to be any more than a minute or two. I'm not looking for like the 10 minute life lifetime movie story of working with a designer. But I think that is, you know, it's where the world's going. And if you can get great people on camera talking about how awesome you are, it's great for your marketing and for perception. Well, let me know how that goes. Sounds fun. I will. And then, so after review and feedback, testimonial requests, I think Kate, you and I did the same thing. We send a really nice thank you note. I think you've dropped yours already at, on the site. I usually mail it. And I think you take your clients to lunch, don't you, after the project? That's, that's nice. Um, I find some way to treat them, whether it's if it's a really long project and there's a big lag time between when they've paid me money and when they see the fruits of all that labor, <laughs> um, I might take them out to lunch and just find out, you know, how are they feeling about things? So it might be earlier on while we're getting the ball rolling and things are moving. Cause that can be a, that can be an intimidating time for clients yeah. when they feel like I've doled out all this money, but I don't see a lot of action going on. And, you know, just sort of wondering, even though I'm in touch and I give them weekly updates, um, just, it, it could be at that point, but, um, perhaps it's not a situation where that makes sense. So, um, sometimes we'll take them out to happy hour or to lunch or coffee or whatever. Um, but do you prefer to do something with them or give a gift at the end of the project? Um, I've done both. And I think it just depends on your relationship with the client. I mean, I have 
who three of my closest friends started out as clients. So, (laughs) um, and just this morning I was, I was doing some install work and like, it was just one of these things where it's like, I just don't even feel like I could charge her anymore. We're so close. I love her. We actually said, I love you when we were leaving. So um, my neighbor across the street, we've traveled together to Mexico. She's our families have, she started out as a client. I'm going back to Denver in a few weeks to, uh, for a speaking engagement. Um, so like those girls, women, um, we 100% went out and grabbed lunch, coffee, drinks, and then just kept the party going. Um, but other projects, it's, it feels, um, more right to give them a a thank you gift. Yeah. I think you've got to feel it out. That's a great point. There's not necessarily a one size fits all answer, but I do think something at the end of the project in step 10 to honor and thank the client, whether it is FaceTime with you and a good meal, or if it is a thoughtful gift, something for their home, something for their family, I think that's a great thing. And then this is another one I'm trying out post-project is straight up asking for a referral. Hey, you were amazing to work with. I would love to meet more people like you. Do you have the name of a friend I can reach out to that might be interested? And it, this takes serious guts to do. Like I, yeah. I get a little sweaty, nervous doing it, but you don't get what you don't ask for. And if you've got a happy client who loves you, you know, I think we all think, oh, if they really like me, they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll send my name. And no, they don't think of it. You need, you need to ask, period. Mm-hmm. I'm so proud of you for doing this. It is something I am terrible at, but I know it's so important. <laughs> well, it's one of those things I'm just learning to build into my processes and checklists and I just do it. Like you kind of can't think about it. You just have to do it. Yeah. I know. It's kind of like my husband and I were talking, my husband's sort of in sales now. Um, he's left the research world that is in sales and, um, sales is something I've had to do for years now that I've owned my own business. And he was just complaining to me the other day that that, that client that he reached out to hasn't responded and he's emailed him and, or I was like, well, how many times have you emailed him? I called him. He's like, just once. And I was like, you're waiting for him to follow up with you. Oh, baby. That's that's sales 101. Come on. Never leave it in the client's court. So like, that's something I'm comfortable with, but it took, it, it's a muscle that I had to build over time. And so, uh, I imagine that the asking for referrals is something as well. It is. You got to flex that muscle, but if you've got a happy client, they have loved the process. You had an amazing reveal. It's, it's really not a lot to ask of them to say, hey, do you have the you know, name of a friend I can reach out to and see if they'd be interested in something? You can find ways to word it that feel more authentic to you, but the gist is have the courage to ask directly and you never know where that will lead. They're a happy client. They're going to want to send you to their friends so you can make them happy too. I would, I would just, I think one way you might think about it is I, I've done the math on this once, but I, I want to say somewhere in like the 90 to 95% range of my clients are all hiring me because they've just experienced or in the process of experiencing a major life change. So these are things like getting married, getting divorced, having a baby, moving, downsizing, mm-hmm. becoming empty nesters, all of these like major milestones that happen in life. And so when you are reaching out to ask for a referral, you can, to help jog their memory, you can mention this and say, do you have any friends 
or people that you know and love and think could benefit from our services, anybody that's, and start listing those things that I just mentioned, because this is, this is usually the time when people are needing the most help. Yeah. I love it. That's you got to get them all taught. Yeah. All right. Well, this is, this has been a long conversation. Let's wrap up and recap the steps. We got step six procurement, step seven project management, step eight install day, step nine wrapping up that project. And step 10 is the post project goodness. And let's talk about kind of the key takeaways from these last two episodes that we'd love for you guys to really understand and hopefully incorporate into your businesses. So if you don't already have a clearly defined process, write it down, figure out the steps step-by-step for you and your business and figure out who's going to be doing those steps. You probably shouldn't be doing every single one of them. So yes, where can you delegate? And then once you've done that, take a look at everything from the client's perspective, make sure your process is clear and simple. And this is something that's great to have in front of someone else who doesn't know design, maybe ask a family member, a friend, because you know all these terms, you know the process. It's really easy to think it's clear and simple, but run it by someone else and get their feedback to make sure that it's easily understood what they can expect every step of the way. So true. Okay. I also want to emphasize to um, you guys, the importance of creating a one sheet that you can provide with clients with the overview of your process, not just at that one initial consultation meeting, but you should be handing them one sheets throughout the process. Um, whether it's in person or in an email, um, I have one sheet. I have one sheet. <laughs> it's getting late. I have one sheets for not only my initial consultation, but once they onboard with me, what to expect over the next few weeks. I have a one sheet for that they get one week before the presentation, a one sheet that they get at the presentation and a one sheet at the reveal day. So one sheets are a way to feed your clients information that doesn't overload them. Cause if you give it all to them at the outset, they're going to feel overwhelmed. Yeah. I think that's great. And finally, key takeaway, follow the process. You know, this is a process that, we both use, you've probably developed your process. It might not look exactly the same as ours. There's a very popular 15 step strategy out there. We've kind of drilled it down to 10. There's no magic number. It really is about figuring out what works for you. The important part is follow the process. You know it works and errors can so easily happen when you go rogue or say, oh, just this once, or I don't need to do this set. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's how you get the womp womps. That's how you make your own womp womps is you don't follow what you know works in your business. That's so true. So yeah. true. If well, you let's, let's wrap it up on that then. Follow your, make your process, make it clear, and then follow it. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. Oh, here she goes again. Follow, it's always follow, singing. Follow, follow the yellow brick road. <laughs> Well, thank you guys for being here this week. We love having you. If you're listening to this, which you are, screenshot it, share it on social and tag us. We'd love to chat with you. Let us know what you learned from today's episode and how we can help you on a future episode. Hey designer, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes so we can continue to connect with badass design bosses like you. For more Designers Getting Coffee and to join the conversation, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Designers Getting Coffee.